Good morning. It's good to see everybody. I'm in the middle of transitioning between glasses, so I can see most of you fairly well. Um, It is my pleasure to bring God's word to you this morning. We do have uh, a large chunk of scripture in our bulletin, and that's been assigned this morning. I'm not going to make you stand as I read the whole thing, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, We will look at all of it, um, but as is the tradition here, I'd ask you to stand with me as we read God's word. I'm going to pick up and begin starting in chapter 22, verse 1. Follow along as I read. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet, and he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, he should not be allowed to live. And jump ahead to verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, 
He unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you ordered to me, me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great, great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. For the past year or so, I have observed and witnessed many criminal court proceedings. And as you may not know, there are quite a few people in jail for crimes right now, many of them awaiting trial. But what I do know about them, whether or not they're guilty or innocent, is that there's probable cause uh, to hold them for the crime that they are alleged to have committed. And they're held for trial based on the evidence that's against them. In this passage, we see that Paul ended up on trial. And he says why in the passage that I read this morning. He is on trial for his hope of the resurrection. So whether those who arrested him understood this reason or not, it was the hope of the resurrection that led him to stay on the course of ministry that he had received from the Lord. And the question that I have for you is, could you be indicted for your hope of the resurrection? So Paul's experience in Jerusalem and the testimony that he gives before the Jews is given to us so that we also would have that hope. Which leads me to the main idea that we have for this morning. The resurrection of Christ is meant to give you hope and endurance for a life of service to him. Our main idea is that the resurrection of Christ is meant to give you hope and endurance for a life of service to him. I'm going to break up our time this morning into three uh, sections from these three chapters. First, I'll just give a summary of events from all of chapters 21 to 23. Second, and for most of the morning, we're going to look at the theological highlights from this text. And then lastly, we'll walk away with some implications. So since we have a large section, I just want you to follow along in your Bible as I walk us through the events here. 
The first thing I want to point out is something of the bookends of this morning's passage. The first bookend is actually before the section that we read, Acts 20, verses 22 to 24. This was Paul with the Ephesian elders. Um, He says, Now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This was highlighted for us last week. We see that Paul is not holding any value to his life, but finishing his course. In Acts twenty-one thirteen, we have a repeat of this sentiment. Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I am not only ready to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. These show the trajectory for the rest of the book. The latter book end for our section is 23.6, when Paul cried out before the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And then in 23.11, which also serves as a transition to the remainder of the book, when the Lord Jesus stands by Jesus or Paul and says, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So in the wider context, Paul is embracing and living in the mission, purpose, and plan that the Lord Jesus has given to him, which we see was revealed to him through Ananias of Damascus in Acts 9. When Ananias comes to him and says, go, for he's a chosen instrument, or Jesus is telling Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I must show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So in the context of the whole of Acts, this is further fulfillment of the mission of the resurrected Jesus, which he gave to his apostles in Acts 1.8 when he tells them that they're going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. These chapters are part of the greater story of Acts, which we've been hearing week after week, that the gospel is going forward, and nothing, not even the gates of hell, will prevail against it. So with that in mind, let's walk through these chapters before we consider how we should respond to it. So first, at the beginning of Acts 21, we see that Paul and his companions are traveling to Jerusalem. Along the way, they stay with some people. We could do a sermon on staying with people, um, but we're going to move past that. What's interesting is we do see Agabus telling Paul of his coming arrest very explicitly, which ties into why Paul has continued to go forward. He knows that this is coming. And starting in verse 17 of Acts 21, we see Paul meets with James and the other elders of the Jerusalem church. And we see the concern that James and Paul have not to offend the Jewish believers, as well as James' concern for Paul's reputation among the Jewish believers. In verse 25 of chapter 21, we get a throwback to Acts 15 and the stipulations that were given to the Gentiles. Nothing has changed here. The Jerusalem church, we need to be aware, is shepherding the people through a major cultural and covenantal shift. And they're being really patient about it as they seek to shepherd both Jew and Gentile in this new relationship that God is creating. In Acts 21-27, in the midst of Paul respecting Jewish law and custom, we see trouble come again. Jews from Asia, likely Jews that had followed him around 
and persecuted him and reviled him and contradicted him, these Jews cause a riot and bring false accusations to Paul. The mob is so violent that it captures the attention of the Roman soldiers, and they believe that Paul is the cause of this disturbance. So they arrest him, they realize that he's not who they think he is, and after revealing his identity and his heritage, both as a Roman citizen and as a Jew, he asks to speak to the crowd. Which brings us to the passage that we read this morning. So, in summary, Paul recounts his background as a Pharisee, his zealous persecution of the church, his mission to arrest Christians. He tells of his encounter with the risen Lord Jesus and how he was knocked to the ground and blinded and led to Ananias, who called on Paul to repent. He skips ahead several years to Jerusalem where the Lord Jesus tells him, you need to get out of town because they're not going to reject you. And that's when chaos erupts again when he tells them that he's being sent to the Gentiles. In chapter 22, verse 22, the uproar again that is caused by this leads to Paul facing a flogging. But here we see Paul appealing to his Roman citizenship to literally save his skin. The Roman tribune orders another meeting in Acts 22.30 when Paul is brought before the council and he testifies that he has been living before God in good conscience up to this day. When the high priest orders Paul to be struck and then Paul reviles him and he gets rebuked for that. He shows respect for the law again by quoting Exodus 22 when he says, you shall not speak evil of rule of your people. Even in the midst of the reviling and the punishment and the persecution, Paul is sensitive to the Jews. He's sensitive to the law. Similar to what Paul says in Acts 20, 24 about being ready to lay down his life, he says in 22, 6, which is also key for understanding all of Paul's life and ministry and conversion, that he is on trial because of the hope of Israel, the, the resurrection of the dead. Now this results in a division that we see, a violent disruption again, which leads to Roman, uh, the Roman tribune removing Paul. And the next night in verse 11, Jesus tells Paul that he will also testify about him in Rome. Now, the rest of the chapter we see, Paul's movement to Caesarea when a plot from the Jews comes up that shows that they're ready to put him to death. But the tribune sends a letter that infers that Paul is not a criminal, but he's kept in custody until more can be learned about him. Now there's a lot going on in these three chapters. And the nature of a narrative is to tell a story. But Luke is doing more than telling a story because Luke also is following this story with a deep theology. He's a careful theologian. So let's take a look at a major theological idea in this text. And it's a theology that's not just pie in the sky. This is theology that impacts how we live. So Luke's account from Paul's arrival in Jerusalem to his departure is helpful for us because he's revealing the power of the resurrection, the power of the risen Jesus in the life of Paul, as well as how the resurrection of Christ is the hope of resurrection for everyone. Now, it's not uncommon for us to hear explanations and defenses for us to have a historical uh, reliability or understand the historical reliability of the resurrection. We hear that in our circles of apologetics and stuff like that. What we don't often hear um, 
or maybe we don't pay attention to it as well, is what that means for us. How are we supposed to live in light of the reality of the resurrection? So I'm going to give you three, three main ideas to walk away with about the reality of the resurrection. The first is that the resurrection is what seals our justification before God. The resurrection is what seals our justification before God. Now, we have seen this multiple times in Acts. In fact, it's everywhere in the scriptures. But in Acts, in Acts 2, at the end of Peter's sermon on Pentecost, Peter proclaims that Jesus is risen, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one that the Old Testament authors pointed to. And when the crowd is struck by this, when they realize what they have done, they cry out, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter tells them to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And it is only at the risen Christ where the power for this forgiveness comes. Again, at the end of chapter 3, Peter proclaims that God raised up his servant and sent him to the Jews first to turn them from their wickedness. In Acts 4.12, the risen Jesus, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the regular testimony that God raised Christ. He raised him and he made him Lord over all, and it is through him and him alone that repentance and forgiveness is granted. Now, but... In Acts 22, many years later, back in Jerusalem, Paul is facing a hostile crowd of Jews. And it is at this point that Paul tells his own conversion story, which is what I want to focus some of our attention on. Specifically right now, in verses 14 to 16, Ananias tells Paul that God has appointed him. And he has granted that he see his righteous one, which is the risen Lord Jesus, and that he has a mission for him. And at, that, at this point, when he is told that he will be a witness, look at verse 16. He says, now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Ananias, like any faithful evangelist, urges Paul to respond to Christ in faith. Through calling on his name, Paul is told that his faith in Christ and baptism washes away his sin. Now last week, if you were here for our equipping hour, we looked at Isaiah fifty-two thirteen through all of chapter 53, that Jesus, the suffering servant, stood in our place as a penal substitutionary atonement. If you weren't here for that, I encourage you to read that passage and think through it. But what we see there is that the punishment for sin was paid by this suffering servant through his death and his resurrection. Paul the Pharisee knew his Bible, and he knew this passage. Now, with the eyes of faith, now that Jesus has appeared to him, his blinded eyes were now open to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And he knew at this moment who this suffering servant was. He knew that it was Jesus, the one who had appeared to him. Paul also knew, thinking about the washing away the sins idea, he also knew Isaiah 1.18, which says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become wool. Ananias told Paul to call 
on the name of Jesus, the risen Lord, and to be baptized, which we see that that means to identify with him, to join with Christ in faith, and to have his sins washed away. Now, I had mentioned a moment ago that the first theological observation is that resurrection seals our justification before God. So where is that here? Well, it's in this promise to have our sins washed away. For sin makes a separation between you and God. It brings God's just wrath on us. You cannot stand in God's presence because of your sin. It has stained you. It has defiled you. You and I cannot approach God in our sin. We all need to be cleansed. We all need to be washed. We all need forgiveness. And yes, Jesus' death, his blood is the basis for our forgiveness. But the death of Christ is the foundation upon which the resurrection happens, the, the foundation of our justification. And the resurrection is at the core of the point that Paul makes in Romans 4 for justification by faith. Faith in what? Well, according to Romans 4.24, righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. You see, Jesus was delivered to death for our iniquities, our trespasses, our sin, but his death took away what brought us the guilt. Paul says in Romans 4.25 that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul makes it clear also in 1 Corinthians 15:17 that the resurrection is absolutely necessary. He says if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But it's not just necessary, it's accomplished. Jesus was raised. And in his resurrection, we can say that forgiveness of sins is available to anyone who would believe. If you're sitting here this morning and you have not turned to Christ calling on his name for mercy, what is holding you back? Do you know that there is a God, a living God, who created you, who made all things, a God that you are accountable to? And it's a God, not only are you accountable to him, but you have lived a life of independence against him, against his rule, which is how we define sin. It's a lawless life because we are not living under his rule. And because of our rebellion, his just wrath is due to all of us. But in God's mercy, he sent his son, the Lord Jesus, the eternal son, who took on our human nature through his virgin birth. This Jesus lived in perfect righteousness in submission to God the Father, died on a Roman cross before Pontius Pilate, as we read this morning, but he did not stay dead. He rose on the third day, appeared to hundreds, instructed his disciples and ascended to the right hand where he is interceding for us right now at the Father's right hand. And he will be there until he returns on the day that is set for him. He requires nothing of you, he requires nothing of me, but that we receive his mercy, trust in his work that he has done, and turn and serve him. This is what the Bible calls repentance and faith. And salvation is available for you today if you have not already done so. So again, the resurrection proves the promise of the gospel. And the promise of the gospel is not just a ticket to heaven. So second, the resurrection gives new life and purpose to your life. 
The resurrection gives new life and purpose. So looking at Paul's testimony, we see that his conversion story is pretty extraordinary. None of us have had such a remarkable experience of events that would take place. And I would argue, though, that each of us, when we turn to Christ in faith, not only did we gain eternal life, but the course of our life was forever altered. It was altered because we have been made new. And with being made new, we've been given a new purpose. When we listen to Paul's account of his life before Christ, we hear that his life was already filled with determination and purpose. In Acts 22.3, Paul says that he was zealous for God according to the strict manner of the law of their fathers. So he was, of all Jews, the most faithful Jew. That's what he's saying. He was fully engulfed, fully embracing his role as a Pharisee. He was so zealous that he was willing, no, he was eager to put people to death for turning away from what he believed was the one true God. And where do you ask, or might you ask, would Paul get such an idea that putting people to death was a good idea for a faithful Jew? Well, Paul, a strict student of his scriptures, New Deuteronomy thirteen twelve through 15, which says, If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell in, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known. Then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. Think about Paul's life. He searched, inquired, and pursued diligently. And he says, And behold, if it be true that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, destroying it, devoting it to destruction, all who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. So remember that Israel under the old covenant lived as a theocracy. The national identity of Israel was equivalent to being the people of God. God had set apart Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as the people who would carry his name. And idolatry was to be purged completely, or else God's fierce anger would drive them out of the land into exile. So Paul lived at a time where this exile had already happened. They were back in the land, and he's convinced that he needed to do his part to keep Israel pure. So in his mind, Christians who are calling Jesus the Lord, they're saying, this is God. Jesus is God. To them, they're saying, this is, he is thinking that this is a foreign God that his fathers did not know because he's blind in his own sin. So he says, because of this perception that he persecuted this way, the followers of Christ who proclaimed him to be God to the death. And he viewed Christ, Jewish Christians as idolaters that needed to be purged. So he was vehemently zealous. He pursued them to foreign cities to persecute and arrest them. And he was just like the Jews that had been following him around, persecuting him, that we see in Acts 17 and Acts 21. But when Christ appeared to him, when he came face to face with the Lord of those he had been persecuting, he began to see things in a new light. You can pardon that pun or not. Bright light shined around him. Now he sees things very differently. Like I said a moment ago, as we heard last week, Acts 20, 24 summarizes his new perspective on life. 
where he says, I do not account my life of any value or of precious to myself, if only may I finish the course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord. So here he is, face to face with the Lord. What brings about this, tr- this change that Paul has where he's living a new life? It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that he is on trial. That's what he's telling him. Paul was once a Pharisee, and as a Pharisee, he believed in the resurrection. So this is nothing new. But now he's face to face with the risen Jesus. And everything that he said that he believed about what was true about the resurrection now had substance, physical substance, right in front of his face. The man from Nazareth appeared to him and gave him a mission. There's more to it. Look at verses 6 through 8 of chapter 22. Paul, he learned rather quickly that what was behind this great light from heaven was Jesus. And he learns also that this is the Lord. He calls him Lord. Now, it's possible that he did not fully realized who this Lord was yet. Um, but what we do see is that he's submitting to this voice. He's submitting to this Lord. As far as Paul was concerned, he had been living to protect God's glory. But now it had become abundantly clear to him that he, that the Lord that he was seeking to protect is the one that he was persecuting. And why is calling him Lord significant? Like in verse 10, he says, what shall I do, Lord? Well, the Lord tells him what to do and he obeys. From Acts 9.20 onward, when we see Luke telling us of Paul's conversion, Paul's zealous concern for the glory of God was not diminished. It was changed. Changed from one of ignorance, self-advancement, to one of a true knowledge of God, a true knowledge of his mercy, and it became a life of humble devotion. Paul came to realize in truth what he wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.15, where he says, and he died for all. Why? That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul came to realize that the pursuit of God was not through the law, but through Christ himself. Hear what he says in Romans 7, 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Paul came to realize that everything that defined him and directed him was not through what he could attain on earth, but from above. Which is why he says in Colossians 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. We read this morning that to set the mind on the flesh is death. Now he knows that everything for life is from above, from Christ. The resurrection of Jesus and the truth of the future resurrection gave new life and purpose to Paul. And it's meant to do so for us as we follow our resurrected Lord. As we come to the end of Paul's defense before the Jews, we see them, um, we see the opposition crop up again. In Acts twenty two eighteen, Paul reports that Jesus said to him, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Now, verses 19 to 20 are a little interesting. Paul seems to be saying something along the lines of, well, won't they see how much you have changed me? Isn't the testimony of my life convincing proof? 
And I just want to take a, a brief moment to address our testimonies, our personal testimonies, our conversion story. Your story of your conversion, my story of my conversion, how the gospel has impacted you and changed you is a testimony to God's grace. It's evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in you. It's useful to help and helpful to demonstrate the life-changing power that the gospel has in your life, but it is not the gospel. Paul, in his response to Jesus' news that the Jews in Jerusalem will not accept his testimony, he seemed to think that this, his testimony about you know, who he was before and who he is after should give credibility to the gospel. But his story, just like your story, is not the power of God for salvation. And I don't want you to get me wrong. Your story is a great segue into the gospel because it is the gospel that brought about the change that you have. You can use your story to speak of your sovereign creator that you were living in rebellion against and how he revealed his son to you in whatever way that happened and how you turned in repentance, receiving forgiveness of sins. Just keep in mind that hard hearts are dead hearts, and it's only the truth of the gospel that will save. So with, this, with that said, let's move on to chapter 23 and Paul's uh, statements before the council. Paul's statement about why he's on trial is what I want to focus on our attention on next, which is that the resurrection is the hope of God's people. In chapter 23, Paul appeared, or excuse me, Paul appealed to the shared belief with the Pharisees that there is a resurrection of the dead. I want you to notice how he words this statement. Look at the last part of 23.6. Paul says, It is respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. This is somewhat of an awkward sentence because of that and. The word translated as and can serve as an explanatory marker. Uh, another way to, to translate it might be to say namely or in other words. And the, the NIV translation adopts this meaning. Uh, it translates the sentence this way, I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. So in other words, the hope is the resurrection. Uh, Paul makes this a little bit more clear in Acts 26, which we'll see next week. But what, what we know is that the resurrection is the hope that Paul is talking about. Now, hope in the Bible has various objects, various uses, and very often, as it is here, it is a certain expectation. This hope that Paul refers to is a long-standing hope of deliverance from death. Back in Acts 2, in Peter's sermon, he quoted Psalm 16. In Acts 2, 25 and 26, we read, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. So he's referring to the resurrection in, in this passage. Peter is quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So if you look back at Psalm 16 in your Bibles, you'll see a few minor differences. Now, this doesn't mean that Peter or the Greek translation is wrong, but that the translation helps the reader understand what is being said. If you compare the two, you will see that dwell in hope in Acts, uh, it says dwell secure in the psalm. You will see the term Hades in Acts and Sheol in the psalm. I want you to see this because I want you to observe the idea that is not necessarily hell, 
that David is glad that he won't be in, but that he won't remain in death. In Old Testament understanding, everybody goes to Sheol, the place of the dead. The concept of Hades um, developing into a place of torment was further developed later. And we see that idea in Luke 16 with the story of the rich man and Lazarus. But in, in the Old, Old Testament understanding, which the apostles are relying on at this point, is that the confident hope of David, the hope that Paul and Peter proclaimed and preached, was that death is not the end. It's certainly not the end of the body. The hope of resurrection is seen all over the Old Testament. It's very explicit in Ezekiel, which we heard in our Easter message. It's in Job. It's in Daniel. It's all over the place. And again, looking at Romans 4, this hope of the resurrection is what Paul writes about regarding the faith of Abraham and justification. So in the section previous to what I mentioned before, starting in verse 16, he says, This is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. So remember, Abraham was an old dude, couldn't have kids anymore. God made a promise to him about having lots of descendants. And Abraham, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist, and hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, the promise of life at a place that is past death. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So why is this the hope of God's people? A resurrection, that is. Most people understand that there is life after death, but not not very many people consider the reality of resurrection, of physical life after death. Well, Daniel speaks of eternal life as death not being the end. In Daniel 12, verses 1 and 2, Daniel writes, But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust, talking about death, and the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The same picture is found in Revelation 20. John writes, And I saw the dead, great and small, Standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found, or was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the resurrection is something that's going to happen for everybody. But the hope of God's people is that at that time, the people of God will experience the fullness of their humanity apart from sin and in perfect delight and pleasure before God. We are embodied creatures. We're not souls trapped in a body. The natural state of our creation is to have a body, and death separates us from that. 
Resurrection restores and rejoins it. It's in our bodies, glorified bodies, that we will enjoy the presence of the Lord without sorrow, without pain, without sin. This is the hope that we have. This should fuel us as we go forward in our life and ministry. Paul writes of this in Romans 8, with particular attention to what will happen with all of creation and the resurrection. Listen to Romans eight nineteen through 24. For the creation, the whole world, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved." Now, the dead who die apart from union with Christ will not be raised to an eternal life of blessing, but for eternal torment. God will repay each one for what he has done. But if you have been joined to Christ by faith, you will be in the presence of the Lord, where there are pleasures forevermore. This is our hope, to dwell with God who created us, to be with him. This is what we were created for, and it will be an indescribable delight. We can't even imagine it because of the sin that we have now that clouds our view of him. As we look to Christ and we see what he has accomplished for us, not just in his death, but in his resurrection, which Paul calls the first fruits, which means he's the first among the rest that will be the harvest that brings God glory and a glory that we will get to share in. So I want to leave you with just a few implications of our hope in the resurrection. There's a lot of theology that we've talked about as far as the truth of what Jesus' resurrection points to. So as I bring these implications to you, they're kind of general. I don't know all of your situations in your life And I I do hope that as you hear some of these, and even as we've talked about what we have seen already, that you consider how that reality should impact your life in these three main ways. One, your belief in the gospel. And one more thing before I move forward. got ahead of myself. I mentioned earlier that and ask the question is whether or not you would be indicted for your hope in the resurrection. So three, three, three kinds of evidence that might stack up against you if you have a hope in the resurrection. One is, your, is there evidence in your belief in the gospel? So I am convinced that the basic principles of the gospel are all that are necessary for a saving faith in Christ. The basics is, is that there's a creator God that we're accountable to, as I mentioned earlier, that we have willfully rebelled against our creator by placing ourselves under his just wrath. And in response to our rebellion, the Father sent the Son to suffer and die in our place, who three days later was raised to life, conquering sin and death. And our response must be repentance and faith in Christ alone, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That's the basics. But I'm also convinced that a right belief in the gospel 
is the continual growth in, and response to all that God has revealed about that plan, including our salvation being founded on the hope that we'll, we will be raised to live with him forever. So as you think about your salvation and the impact of the gospel that it's had on you, that you will be raised to be with God forever, to enjoy the presence of Christ face to face. So is this something that you're growing in? Are you immersing yourself in the revelation that has been completed in the New Testament so that you would have this continuing, growing hope in what God is accomplishing for you? A couple of weeks ago, Paul Our pastor, Paul, emailed the members of this body with three ways to read your Bible for growth and encouragement. The first of those was to read explicit gospel passages daily. Uh, These portions of scripture are meant to do this. They're meant to build us up in our hope. So are you taking up and reading the gift of God's revelation in Christ? And are you growing in your understanding, seeking to grow in your understanding of how we respond to that, how we give praise to God for that, how it exposes us to our fallenness, what Christ has done for us, and how we essentially live in the gospel in response to it. Second, is there evidence that could be stacked up against you in the hope of resurrection as you present the gospel? So related to your belief in the gospel is your presentation of the gospel. Are you, as you grow in the understanding of the gospel and the resurrection that is to come, Does that shape how you share the gospel? As you grow in your understanding that all will be raised either to life or condemnation, are you speaking to those around you with concern and compassion, understanding that those who are not in Christ will be raised, but they will be raised to torment forever? Do you mourn over that reality that we're surrounded by those who will be raised to judgment? And are you speaking of their destiny with conviction and compassion and urgency? Lastly, is there evidence of your resurrected hope, your hope in the resurrection in your life in the gospel? I pointed out earlier that Paul submitted to Jesus as Lord The resurrection is, like I said, is not just a theological subject. It's a topic that's meant to stir us up to perseverance. The scriptures tie the resurrection to the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. When we think about eschatology and the last things, one of the key things about eschatology is a personal eschatology, a personal future that we all have waiting for us. Tied to the resurrection is the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. And Peter writes about that in 2 Peter 3.11, saying, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So the question that comes up as we consider passages like this that look ahead to what our personal eschatology is, is does the resurrection hope give you an endurance to battle against sin in your own life? And how do you deal with the sin? Are you striving in your own strength or are you looking to the resurrected Christ for the power to conquer it? 
as you consider the reality and the hope of the resurrection, are you letting that impact how you deal with difficult relationships? Do you cling to the truth that other brothers and sisters in Christ are being prepared in God's timing for the resurrection in life? Are you being as patient with them as God is? Does it give you patience with those who are burdened with sin, that are trapped in sin, in a way that shows the grace that has been shown to you? And lastly, how about how you face persecution and rejection? I mentioned Romans 8 earlier. As Paul speaks of the glorification that awaits us, the glorification that comes with our resurrection, he says in Romans 8, 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Does the hope of the resurrection help you endure the hostility that this world is throwing at you, even if it's not direct? But sometimes it is direct. We'll face rejection from friends and family, coworkers, whatever. Does that fear keep you from shrinking or keep you from proclaiming it? Or does your hope in the resurrection keep you from shrinking back, as we saw Paul did last week? Did not shrink back from proclaiming everything that was necessary. So Paul, he was on trial. He was on trial because he ministered in the hope of the resurrection. And his hope was founded on the truth of Jesus being the resurrection and the life. The resurrection of Christ and the resurrection to come is meant to give you hope and endurance in your life of service to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we see in these stories and acts the great power that you as the risen Lord accomplished in the building of your church. And sometimes we walk away from these stories thinking of how nice it must have been back then to see such flourishing, forgetting that that same resurrection power dwells in us, We give you praise that you are the God who has conquered death, that you are the God of life, the God of goodness and mercy and forgiveness. And in your mercy and forgiveness, you have sent your son to die and to be raised so that we would live with him. I pray as we consider the impact that your resurrection had in Paul's life, that we would understand how your resurrection impacts our life, that above all things, that we would live in the hope of the resurrection in such a way that it is apparent to all that we are yours and that we have a hope that is beyond anything in this world that is broken and fallen. We trust you for all of these things because you have said that you will do it and we entrust ourselves to you. Help us to be obedient. Help us to have faith and hope in your Son. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.